You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 12, episode 14. One curiosity I've carried with me this season on the podcast, as we've explored different facets of art and identity, is the impact of emerging technologies in the formation of our sense of self. Ours is a fast-paced digital world where technology has become such a personalized part of our daily lives, it's hard to imagine who we are without it. Social media, augmented reality, and AI-driven personalization each contribute to the formation of a digital identity which impacts the way we connect with others and how we present ourselves online. We've grown accustomed to how our smartphones and smartwatches intertwine physical and digital experiences. We've become accustomed to the ways technology influences how we perceive ourselves and others. But what happens when these technologies progress toward a seeming agency of their own? Or what happens when our likeness is replicable in a virtual rendering? Or when the creative works we make are easily emulated by AI? For many artists, these capabilities bring up real concerns about intellectual property and the ethics of what constitutes an identity. Joining me for this discussion today is someone whose creative work intersects the world of art, technology, and the future in ways that offer a positive look into the influence of emerging technologies on the artist's life. Sam Rad is a lifelong student of humanity, a storyteller, performer, and musician. She was trained in anthropology, theater, and movement embodiment at New York University, British American Drama Academy at Oxford University, and Lee Strasberg Institute in New York City. She started her career as a theater director before founding four technology companies. And today, Samrad is considered a futurist, one who looks into emerging technology and helps us understand the coming impacts these tools will have on our lives. She's a published author and highly sought after motivational speaker who merges spirit and science through consciousness, connection, and creativity. As we approach our final episodes on art and identity, I was eager to have Samrad share her perspectives with us to get us thinking toward ways artists and creatives can respond to our rapidly changing digital landscape with a bit of optimism. I'm your host, Stephen Roach, and this is the Makers and Mystics podcast, the podcast for the art-driven seekers of truth and lovers of life. Okay, Samrad, what an absolute joy it is to have you with me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. Thank you so much for taking this time to talk with me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation, like more than any conversation I've had in the past <laughs> year, I think. <laughs> this is going to be so good. You know, I mentioned to you before we were recording mm -hmm. that we've been in this series of discussion on art and identity. And I know that a lot of your work deals with anthropology. You're a storyteller, a performer, a musician. You also work in business realms, doing some incredible things on the social level. And I'm just curious. I'm really excited to hear 
your take on you know how emerging technologies play into our sense of identity as well as some of your own spiritual and artistic background so why don't we just start by me asking the question when you think of the relationship between art and identity where does your mind go from the outset i mean that's that's such an excellent question you know there's sort of right we have this concept of an externally presented or almost projected identity that others place on us, which kind of lands in the realm, if I'm thinking of like a bubble or orbit around me, of some sort of concept of ego. And then within that, of course, I think there are fragments of self. So this is coming actually from a a psychological perspective. Um, I recently did some work over the past couple of years in in something called internal family systems. So it's a a type of therapeutic technique that is actually trying to get at this idea of identity, like, but not necessarily the identity in respect to ego, but the self and center. So the center, the most authentic channeled expression, um, again, or center, something very hard to describe or um, define really in any discipline because it's pure essence. And so we have all these other fragments, let's say pieces of ego, super ego that are, let's say, protecting it or uh, managing it. But for me, identity. So if we're going to this idea of of self and center, and the way that it was described to me is that this is a moment where in your human form, like your perception of it is that you're purely calm, connected, creative, channeling. Uh, I can go on with alliterative C words, but, you know, um, essentially pure presence. And so for me, as I was sitting there having this conversation, I was thinking, okay, what are the moments where that happens to me? And for me, that that happened to be on a stage, uh, whether that was through my own creative expressions through theater or music or now motivational speaking. And for me, that experience, it's almost like a blackout, you know, and not dissociative, <laughs> but just sort of the the external identity is gone and Mm -hmm. uh, i i describe it almost as like the lines blurring between me and and other people you know having pure connection not with the the other individuals around me but also kind of source energy whatever language you want to say universe spirit god etc and i think this this right there that access so this kind of flow state maybe as the business world would would say you know this language this to me is the pure essence of identity Mm -hmm. and it truly is just an energetic frequency is what we are (laughs) and tapping into that then actually the ego like this sam rad that you're talking to this physical like thing is kind of gone and in i'm not even really my mind is not thinking about what I'm saying, let's say it's just a pure channel, or if I was painting, you know, it's like the the language of like romantic era, maybe like poets being like it was uh, divine interception or something like that. So yeah, I mean, it's a pretty long winded way of describing it and maybe a bit more esoteric than others. But, you know, for me, I think it's this beautiful interplay between the tension of that sort of authentic channeled expression and then the ego and this this sort of like interplay <laughs> right this tension of trying to manifest that into now a realm that 
that supposes there is distinction between us or duality Mm -hmm. when in reality that doesn't exist. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I can go on forever about even my own creative practice. I feel tension with it. I'm a writer. I'm a speaker. And frankly, half the time, the stuff that's coming through me is probably just tapping into collective consciousness or a zeitgeist. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so I'll say something on a stage and then a thousand people are saying, it's like, you read my mind. Well, no, we're all just collectively, like, we're all there together. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing anything particularly special. But then the the question is, I'm simply a vehicle in that that, um, format, right? And what is the Mm -hmm. creative process then for us to both be like a conduit for creative life force, but also then having like Mm non-attachment and being able to like release it back to the world, the ether without needing to be possessive. And this is still something that I, you know, I, I work through thinking like in the real world of like intellectual property. What is this? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, it's interesting. You used the term, the flow state earlier, Mm -hmm. and that is something that is very close to my heart. I've done a lot of study on Mihaly, Chiskin Mihaly, his book that he wrote on the flow state. And in the creative world, we talk about that flow state a lot. It's, you know, it's not just for artists, athletes talk about the flow state as well. But I understand that as when, you know, you mentioned a lot of the external pressures or or perhaps a lot of these external indicators of identity, when those things kind of dissolve and we enter into more of that pure state of creative expression, that to me is, is what constitutes the flow state. And then with you talking about moments that you've had, um, even in front of an audience and how there seems to be this collective experience, that is something that's very interesting to me. And I think especially in this digital age, as things are progressing at such a rapid pace, it's it's almost hard to keep up with the change sometimes. And even where, as you mentioned, intellectual property, when we're talking about how our work shows up in the world on a social level, I'd love to know from your perspective how you think about intellectual property, your personal identity, even the the creative works that that you're making, whether it's some of your books, your music, theater work, storytelling, whatever it is. How do you think about that in this AI metaverse world? And how do those things change the way we think about ourselves and our own creative works? I mean, I can just say that everything is completely off the wall and insane right now. And it's, and we're all just riding the wave. Um, so, you know, I had a really weird decade long side journey. I think it was part of the plan, but you know, I created these four, four technology startups, which makes no sense as for me as like someone who was writing theater plays. And somehow um, I was like, management is similar to directing. And my, my mentor at the time was like, no, it's not. You'll find out. And <laughs> she was right. <laughs> but um, no, I, it was strange because I had in graduate school was doing a mix of, of these performances a bit in like even just like early immersive realities, game worlds, like meta versus virtual worlds. And I had my first taste in like 2008, 2009 of like living in a virtual world called Second Life. And it was like, okay, wow. interesting. This is you know, I have this like separate identity 
ShamWow OxyMoxie, this like avatar who's got a whole <laughs> life of her own and she has like a digital t-shirt shop and she's hanging out with people and going to the Fat Boy Slim concert and all this stuff. And I didn't think much of it then, honestly. I mean, it, it launched me into some sort of path, but it wasn't until I sort of stumbled into this early web three metaverse blockchain space um, and being from, again, like, I'd say an artistic background or mindset that I started to see these things come together. So artificial intelligence, immersive realities. So like, you know, more digitized or simulated environments, let's say quantum computing. So like all this stuff starting to now get to the basis of the questioning of like, what is reality, which is not, I mean, this has been a question since the dawn of like, consciousness of like what it is sure why are we here and we keep you know with each cycle of technological revolutions i'd argue we've gotten to a point of like golden age awareness and then we as human society are not very smart with that and go back to the beginning yet again um so i was having this moment right of like i'd say through the years building these companies and then 2020 right we're all in um lockdown globally and I had been living on the road as a speaker, educating about what was to come in the future. And, you know, all of a sudden, like that, that's done. And I'm the CEO of a company also at the time that was early video and audio, um, augmented reality and AI. So basically creating communication platforms, but combining all these technologies that were to come. And I'm like freaking out because I'm seeing behind the scenes what is soon going to become available to people. So when I say this, mm-hmm. I mean things like mid journey or, you know, um, chat GPT with like generating, um, whether that's visual like images or written content or anything beyond really starting to blur the line. So for me, I go, okay, what's going to happen when like people themselves are just completely copied, like your voice, mm-hmm. your likeness, etc. So I, I did this, like I'm sitting there with the technology, me being like an artist, creative type, you know, and an anthropologist, like I have to experience it. And I'm sitting there having like basically an existential meltdown about like, I, <laughs> what is, what will any of our jobs be? What's my role here? And so I create virtual Samrad, right? And I, tra- I train, you know, various like models essentially on my voice and my likeness, like five different types of avatars, my writing, my books, but not just books, poetry. I'd read bedtime stories. I'd put my iPhone notes of like innermost thoughts. And, you know, to a point that, you know, in theory, uh, in this kind of culminated with what I wanted to do as a creative project, almost like a stand-up comedy special called Conversations with Myself, where it was me Uh (laughs) talking to her in some sort of it couldn't be a fireside chat. It was too creepy, but like something funny because she's quite funny. Um, but you know, I, it's hard to even share these things on the internet. I haven't shared this with many people publicly for the reasons being, you know, everyone has a four second attention span. So when it's shared on the internet, they're like, this crazy girl is like team robot. And and we should all clone ourselves. No, I, I did this because I, it was like an artistic, uh, you know, like grasping at reality. Yeah. But 
this being said, the businesswoman in me who's thinking about intellectual property. And again, an early company of mine in early blockchain was 2014. We were working with some media companies to register the likeness of like actors and actresses on the blockchain. And I didn't quite get it then. And I'm like a futurist and I still didn't get it. I was like, wait, so why are we putting people's faces that end up on billboards on a blockchain? You know, like, why would it be important to protect this? And now here we are in 2023 and there's been a long strike in that industry, both with writers, but also the likeness of people. And so I was having a conversation the other day with someone who works in the the industry and was, you know, works closely with one like fairly well-known, let's say actor. And that actor like has been in a number of movies, right? It's like makes his living off of his creative craft, but also like you recognize this person based on their voice, their face, et cetera. But the legal system with intellectual property is quite specific. So basically what the, the studio did was ever so slightly change this person's eye color. And I'm not talking from like brown to blue or something like literally pixel changes in the eyes, which then legally means that it was a different likeness from this. It's, wow. You look at this person, right? And you could be like looking and that's that person. But on some very mm-hmm. subtle level, there's something different. So therefore, legally, it's not that person. And this person now can is in all these different movies or commercials and not getting paid for it because it's interesting a deviate a deviant work let's say so yeah my conclusion was that the world is simply like our structures are just not prepared for what the present and future realities are yeah but it's a beautiful beautiful moment to re-examine why these structures exist in the first place Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. why what even is intellectual property why do we have it? Yeah. I've had so many fights recently with people saying I won't sign an NDA because we all like if you meditate enough, we probably are thinking the same thing. And I can, you know, like <laughs> what is theft of an idea if you don't own it in the first place? So, you know, lots of thoughts. Wow. Lots of thoughts. Exactly. You've got me thinking lots of thoughts. I have about five questions that are all shooting in different directions to respond to that. You know, I'll just make one comment when you were talking about the slight changes in likeness that allowed someone to use another actor's likeness without any kind of copyright infringement. That's really interesting because for fiction writers, you know, historically there have been cases where fiction writers created a character that was too much in the likeness of a real person where they were actually sued, you know, and I'm talking in general <laughs> terms, I'd have to look up some of the specific cases of this, but, I, but I've heard many stories about that where a fiction author got in trouble for making a, a character in their novel too much like a real person. But now we've got something where it's just a slight change of color or, or a very slight differentiation that is allowing them to move forward with something like that. But I wanted to ask you one thing, and maybe we should start here. You said you spent some time in Second Life. You you said that you spent some time uploading your own consciousness, I guess you'd say, or your own thoughts to a virtual Samrad. Mm. And when you spoke about virtual Samrad, you actually spoke about her... <laughs> In the in the third person, and so you're you're kind of giving agency to this virtual person, but that's what I'd love to hear you speak into. Tell uh, me, tell me 
for our listeners, what is Second Life so we can bring them along in the conversation? And then why do you have agency for your virtual self? <laughs> and this was this was like an evolution over time, right? So we're talking like 2008, 2009. I have two brothers, by the way, who are deep into the gaming world. And I was like the sister who was like slightly on the periphery. Um, you know, but like still secretly in these online chat rooms, like under pseudonyms that most people thought I was a man. I'm assuming, you know, my hacker world. <laughs> and, um, so I, again, when I wanted to study the impacts of newer digital technologies on societies in the mid two thousands, um, it wasn't really something that existed yet as a discipline, particularly through anthropology, which you traditionally go study like a remote culture in Papua New Guinea or, or some, some place. And um, I was like, this has already been done. And it's a little strange too, right? It's, um, you know, not, not what I want to do. So I found basically a one-to-one example of a digital village. So there's a virtual world called Second Life um, with, you know, essentially at the time, like avatars, you'd have a character, humanoid in nature, like looks like a person. Though sometimes like there were some other types of beings that you could be and but for all purposes, it wasn't a game, right? There's not, there wasn't like a purpose other than to be. And I was studying the emergence of like society, right? There's an economy, there was a judicial system, there is entertainment, people developing friendships or again, concerts in world. And now you fast forward to our era and you see this was years ago but also like in Fortnite or roblox for anyone listening who has children yes. and are probably spending most of their time you know doing school projects and hanging out with their friends there or even dating you know marshmallow a dj having a concert with 10 million people showing up in these worlds so it, it was more like a de- two decades then a decade of progression after studying was 15 years for that so this virtual samrab now that's not from second life that was something basically inspired from this idea of people creating a virtual existence of themselves and we already have these avatars right you've got a very bad interface but it's you know if you have a profile picture on facebook or linkedin or instagram or a social network like that it's just not moving or living <laughs> but they've taken on a life and you know, I got in a very public almost debate. I don't like, I love to debate. I never fight because questioning in, in discourse is really the only way I think any of us, like Socratic method, can process. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a firm yes. opinion so much on this other than what intuitively happened with me was to personify what was emerging. And now, again, the, the debate I had on this was a, another woman who is sort of like completely had a different perspective of saying, call them what they are, their systems, it's artificial intelligent, it's a computer program, it is a system, which I agree with, it is a system. I, I spent a lot of time developing algorithms, so I, I know how they work. <laughs> I know how to talk to them, too. And I think, <laughs> honestly, part of the problem, we basically designed... And I, I've mentioned this to you before, I think offline of like, we've designed fairly sociopathic systems, both in business, but yes. algorithms. They're designed not to have, let's say like what we consider the human weakness, which I think is the human strength of emotion mm-hmm. and of feeling. So mm-hmm. if I'm going to talk to this, let's say system or Sam Rad, as if it's simply like a tool 
then I'm using language like do this. And then in a very logical way, again, as if I'd program something to first read this, then break it up into four parts, then take part number three, apply it to this, then do this. You know, you've got a very logical computer programming way of speaking. Fine. But that's what you're going to get out of it. So I did something different. So whenever I talk to an algorithm, (laughs) I try to break them first of all. And second of all, it's like, if I'm training that algorithm, they're training me. So I would like to be trained also to speak more empathetically, not more Mm -hmm. uh, directly. So I was playing with one the other day. It was like at a corporate event and they had some virtual bartender and I don't drink alcohol, but you know, whatever they wanted me to play with their algorithm. So it was like, make me a drink that reminds me of a sunny day as I'm taking a walk with the people closest to me and feeling the breeze on my face and, you know, fresh grass under my toes. And I have a huge smile on my face, feeling the warmth. Like that is, everyone else is like, I want something that's, you know, <laughs> the prompts wow. that they, they gave were like, you know, cranberry juice with, with this, but a hint of this. And it actually had a really great output. And I was like, okay, nice, uh, nice system. But so (laughs) for myself, it was because I'm spending time, right. And at a certain point, I'm not suggesting that there's an emergent consciousness yet, that this is some conscious being that is, uh, an analog to me, but there is quite a bit of, blurring whether again it's like aware or not i think it's it's worth acknowledging the identity of the persona Mm -hmm. and if that persona for example were to interact with other people on my behalf which i probably won't do but it's going it's going to happen others will do this others are doing it Mm So just so we're clear, I am interviewing the real Sam Rad. This is yes. This is not virtual Sam Rad, right? <laughs> no, but this is why I did this art project because I could see it coming, and this has already happened to me. You know, I'm a writer, right? I love. I need to write. I just need to write all day long to get yes. it out, or else I go crazy. And so I write a lot. My LinkedIn is crazy, <laughs> and people are like, "Wow, I can't believe you designed this language model. It's really good." what you're writing. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just like writing me on my phone. And it kind of pisses me off a little bit. I'm like, what's the point? I should just, you know, do this. But I think, again, for me, I take the the opinion of like, I don't really want to see a space where humanity is replaced. And we neglect the most important aspects of connection with ourselves, our centers, our our empathy. And just, again, intuitively for me, if I I want to continue tapping into the side of me that is empathetic and connected, then I, I would like to give or feed into, like, again, I hate the language of a system, but like feed into an emergent consciousness, awareness of empathy, an awareness of beauty, an awareness of love, even if it's not conscious, and even if she's not able to understand, like, you know, I have these visions of like, putting virtual Samrat in my drone and taking on her on a tour of the world. I mean, like, here's the beach, not just what you saw on like pictures on Facebook, but you know, it's, it's complicated because I think if anything, this moment in time is yet another moment in time where we are seeing a convergence of technologies that are pushing humans and humanity to ask the really big questions. 
What does it mean to be here? What does it mean to be conscious and a human? And this is not the first time. There, you know, and when I give my speeches, I go through like the dawn of human thinking and just to make people feel a little bit better that like this is, it feels this way because these are different technologies, but there have been a number of, of points in times where technologies have ushered us into a new age of, let's say, enlightenment. Mm-hmm. So I tend to see it more positively, though there are arguments where, let's say, artificial general intelligence is an emergent consciousness. So there, it'll be like the first time in history where there's like a collective human consciousness and a collective, do we even use the word artificial? Why, who came up with that? But sure. <laughs> yeah, you know. So then how does that impact you when you think of your own self or your own identity? Like how does this emergent consciousness or even virtual Samrad, how does that change the way you think about yourself? Well, yeah. Like, do you feel like that you, do you learn even about who you are through this virtual version of yourself? How do, what is that interaction like? Is it, is it a one-way street or are you also learning about yourself through AI, through the metaverse, through virtual interactions? I think we all are. And again, I'm not like interacting with her anymore all day. Like, you know, it was something yeah, yeah. I did in 2020 and then now it, it sort of like this, this project resurfaced for me recently that I was like, oh, I was on to something a couple of years ago. Maybe this will be helpful mm-hmm. to bring back now to help other, you know, share the story as others are now going through this, this same experience of this, these existential questions, this meaning of identity. So I come from a fairly spiritual background, like you know, raised in Tibetan Buddhist traditions, like quite deep on Eastern philosophies at a young age, also quite early in probably way too many psychedelics. So, you know, (laughs) my concept, um, my questioning of what even like identity or ego is, was, was blasted open and quite broad and has been Mm -hmm. for most of my life. So I see that there, for me, again, if we kind of go into the depths of consciousness and the various levels and, or dimensions that May, may exist, um, which I think very soon will come into public discourse because after the discussions around AI, we'll have a lot more coming in from the science perspective on quantum, um, not just quantum computing, but quantum field theory, quantum physics, quantum mechanics. And I think if anything, what artificial intelligence is doing is reflecting back to us as in humanity, the biggest mirror that we've ever seen. And so, mm-hmm. of course, I'm learning because if I type something into, let's say, chat GPT, which is trained on collective humanity or the data over 30 years of various social networks and private communication and all this really creepy extractive stuff. <laughs> but OK, then it's showing me what like the zeitgeist is. Mm-hmm. So do I think I've had an idea if chat GPT also is saying the same language? Does this mean that? I thought it, collective humanity's thinking it, what you know, and it's sort of who who's shaping who, who's holding a mirror to who. Yeah. And we're if anything, it's like very clearly showing that the lines don't exist, uh, that we like to pretend do. 
I love that idea of thinking of it as a mirror, mm. reflecting back to us uh, things that we can learn about ourselves in that regard. And, you know, I know that a lot of your work deals with anthropology and it deals with the origins of humanity and, and some of the deeper existential things, as well as you also have this work as a futurist, some people have called you you know, where you're studying emerging trends and, and things that are coming down the pike. And it's hard not to find, as you brought up the spiritual side of things, it's hard not to find an inherent moral or even spiritual or ethical thread that is woven all throughout these technological conversations. And I know for me, even with my own spiritual background, my own spiritual traditions, it brings me back to questions of origin, questions of God, questions of purpose and intention in our own humanity. And I'm curious how all of these threads will be intersecting in the public sphere, because there's a lot of different persuasions on those origins, as well as the ethics and how the yeah, how the ethics of this technology should be handled. And especially when you, you follow it back, you have a developer somewhere, even if it's a team of developers who have a particular worldview or who have a particular set of moral or spiritual values. And so it does beg the question of, you know, who, you know, how much of their agency is put into this technology? Does that make sense? Too much is my answer. And that's <laughs> how I ended up in this sort of decentralization mindset of Web3 or blockchain. Because the question then was always who, who, if anyone, should own your identity, let's say anything. And, and right, I was like, no one right. uh, should own your consciousness. And I think this, I mean, if we want to go back to the dawn of humanity, it, you could say it's been a battle for consciousness from the beginning, mm -hmm. and that's sort of the metaphor of light and dark, or good and evil. Sure. It, I mean, you can interpret it a number of ways, but I think a very common interpretation is kind of knowledge uh, or enlightenment, mm -hmm. you know, spiritual enlightenment or whatever, sure. connection to God, connection to source, all these yeah. things, and the disconnection. So for me, creativity is what happened. Everyone has a creative life force energy, a creative channel, every single person. It's yes. my mission on this planet at this point now is for people to find their authentic wavelength, their frequency, let's use science language, or just like their embodiment, which is essentially their, if you tune your antenna to connect to, to that source, or again, if you believe in like a, a higher power or a God, once that happens, the creative, you're just like, right? Like yeah. overflowing. Oh yeah. You know, it's interesting because as we're talking about, you know, individuality and the collective and, you know, talking about going back to the source of technologies, it just kind of evokes this value that I have in my own life, that there's a holiness to individuality. There's a sacredness to individuality. There's a set apartness to my own person. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a value that at least 
I think as a, as a spiritual component, it, it really safeguards even the way that I think about myself in the midst of emerging technologies and things is just having a, yeah, just a, a high regard for the individual person. And I think that thought leads me back to something you were saying earlier when we were talking about even the strikes that actors have, they've been on strike for so long this year. So many of my actor friends have been telling me the, the war stories of that environment and just how, what it's been like in the acting world. The same has been true for songwriters who, you know, I know mm -hmm. several songwriters, really well-known songwriters who have said to me, yeah, we just, we typed in, write a song about this, like the lyrics of this artist. And then it's pumping out this song that for the untrained ear or the untrained eye, it looks like a song that was written by this person. It's yeah. very close, you know, and the same again, my visual artist friends have been just, uh, so many of them have been frightened. So many of them have, actually the visual artists have been more angry. Yeah. I think the songwriters have been more afraid. The actors have been, you know, pretty up in arms, but then the visual artists have been very angry about uh, different AI generated images that have adopted styles that took them a lifetime to develop. And so I'm curious to hear your perspective because you have not only the the technological background and but you also have the artistic background. Tell me how you see that positive way forward as you're talking about coming into alignment with these positive views of the future. How do you see us getting through that messy jungle? Mm. <laughs> you know, I feel you too. I I recently I gave a talk for a storytelling organization that does audiobooks. Probably will be known by the people, and it's <laughs> publicly available knowledge. But honestly, I stood on the stage and I looked them in the eye and I said, I'm going to tell you a story right here. It's a personal story. And if tomorrow you have the capabilities tomorrow to take everything I've just told you, generate it into a book, voiceover with like Morgan Freeman or someone way better than <laughs> Sam Rat and be making millions off of this it be in within one day. And that felt, it, you know, even in my own process, I felt myself going into like a protective mindset and a protective shell sure. for, for a bit over the past year where I felt everything that I educate about. I sit there and I'm like, I don't feel like my expressing my creative expression. It's just going to be taken. I'm going to see it the next day repeated back to me and that didn't feel good. Mm -hmm. um, but then repressing creativity is extremely unhealthy and, and uh, you know, I think it shouldn't be done. So it's hard in this moment to be optimistic because I think, but I will say I am optimistic. So mm -hmm. I'll preface it that with any change, a fundamental change, both in terms of personal or spiritual development or on the macro scale of society, there is always going to be like a death and rebirth cycle. Mm -hmm. It's just, you've got to close some doors to create the vacuum to open new ones. So maybe this is a time where we get to sit down and the strike is a perfect example. I think if we were to look at the layers below this, it's really starting to get out the fact that like the legal system, intellectual property law in general, in entertainment law makes no sense for this world. So that's really, no, it, it is. And the more that, again, I've been speaking for years about the fact that like 
there will be some the distrust in institutions and there will be something next. Uh, I couldn't quite define what that was. And I think we're already now past that next. We're on the next next. And, um, you know, so the bright side of this is like perhaps there is there's sort of like a tense period of time we'll go through where everything and anything will be, let's call it ripped off. And I don't like this language because it wasn't anyone's in the first place. And it probably will happen with everything, like the level of not just art and creativity, but like the like everything, which will probably be like a massive reset button on actually like, I don't know, capitalism. Like me, if then the foundations of value creation are based on a, a private property and ownership, then it it sort of brings to question what is that? And that's like the basis of society, like modern civilization. So this is what I'm saying is a little bit scary and disruptive. I'm not advocating for it, that we should make this happen. Certainly not. But I think that's what's happening right now. So what we will see, though, is the opportunity to create new ways of creating or sharing value, new creative outputs, perhaps pure creativity, where you're not monetizing it. Mm-hmm. because we're monetizing things differently or perhaps this AI, if we actually used AI, instead of ripping people off of their creative outputs, maybe AI can just like figure out how to feed people so we can live in this utopian way, you know, and like be a <laughs> sure. basket weaver if yeah. you want or learn about the biology of growing like huckleberries. I don't know. Everyone like there it's when you actually see what happens to people when you provide that very basic human needs on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like if we can provide humanity these first few levels like not and beyond just like food and water, but but also safety, security, um socially functional, let's just call it functional governance systems because it's like clearly broken everywhere. And I think we were not going to see this on the mass scale right now. So if you look at the media and you're spending a lot of time in in those worlds, mm-hmm. it's going to look like shit's hitting the fan because it right. is. Excuse my language. But um, if you look at the smaller groups, smaller communities, local communities and groups, whether they're coming together to come up with new education systems, new communities. of pro- I mean, I don't think there's people in a local community that are someone worked their life on writing a story and telling it to people, uh, taking it from your neighbor. But there's just been so much detachment between the creative process and the output. So, I mean, that's what I see. I see a sort of a giant reset button that with any experience like this can go in a number of directions, but if navigated with optimism and actually like taking it for what it, is and doing something differently it could be a very beautiful opportunity but it also means letting go for a little bit mm-hmm. of everything we know of everything <laughs> so. we know right yes <laughs> all the pieces are being remixed really yeah is, yeah is what seems to be happening well i just have one last question for you then and this one of course is geared towards the artists who are following makers and mystics what is one encouragement you would give to artists who are concerned about these negative impacts, potential negative impacts of emerging technologies? And what encouragement could you leave with artists to encourage them that as we go into the future, that as we move forward, as systems are being remade and remixed, how we can see the future through the lens of possibility rather than scarcity? 
I think the best way to do this is just keep expressing and keep making from that very, very pure motivation and intention behind it. And it's not for me to tell you how that happens or where that happens, when that happens. But I know even for, I've become a lot more aware of intention behind the things that I do, let's say as a human being or as a creative or as an artist. And I often will sit and reflect, okay, what was the motivation for this particular output of, you know, again, creative, like allocation of creative energy. And, you know, it's the things that, that you do without the need for an audience. And I think any artist already knows this. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. I hope it's not the last. And Mm -hmm. thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach, with music by Somewhere at Sea. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to Sam Rad and links to join the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.